Hello, and welcome to I Am at UCL, the podcast, a podcast about the research at UCL that will revolutionize the future of driving. My name is Cassidy Martin, and I am your host on this journey of self-driving discovery. Sometimes in life, it feels like if only this one thing was different, life would be so much better. For instance, if only I had an electric bike, I would be able to get around the city so much faster. If only I had a leisure center nearby, I would be in much better shape. If only LASIK didn't cost so much, I wouldn't have to wear glasses all the time. These are a few of the somewhat ridiculous if-onlys I tell myself. We all have our own versions, right? Well, academic research can also have their own if-onlys, which is certainly the case in this month's episode. I spoke with two academics who are focused on different if-onlys of the transport world. Our first guest feels that if only we were able to create magnetic energy without magnets, we would be much better equipped to transition from petrol to electric-powered vehicles. And the next feels that if only there was a way for autonomous ship and boat designers to test their vessels in the lab before in open water, their research would be more economical and have a higher success rate once in the water. Let's get started. Hello, this is Mehdi Baghdadi. I am a lecturer in Allergy Proportion at Mechanical Engineering Department, and I'm also a co-director of Advanced Proportion Lab at UCL East. Electric Propulsion, Mehdi's research area, are essentially the parts of electric vehicles that propel it into motion. And one aspect of his team's research has been centered around a very crucial part of electric propulsion, magnetic energy. When you charge an electric vehicle, you are feeding electric energy into the car. This electric energy then goes through a conversion process in the car, changing to magnetic energy, then to mechanical energy, allowing the vehicle to move. So if you want an electric vehicle to move, you need to have permanent magnets for the magnetic energy conversion part of the process. But the problem is, there is a limited supply of them. So we have permanent magnets. I'm sure that you've seen magnets. The problem with those magnets is that there are earth materials, which means that there are not many of them and around, and they're very precious, and the sources that those magnets are coming from are very limited to some part of some specific country. So then they are very limited as well. So for example, if we use all of them, there's no other magnets around, which could be quite problematic. And this is an issue when countries want to replace fuel-powered vehicles with electrically powered ones. For instance, at the COP26 summit, the big climate change conference that took place in Glasgow in 2021, there was a declaration to accelerate the transition of selling exclusively zero-emission vans and cars by 2040, and no later than 2035 for leading markets. And in the UK, they are looking at having all new cars sold to be electric by 2030. But this transition will be impossible if an alternative for magnetic energy is not used. The good news is, there is an alternative. But it's 
complicated. We have some other type of motors that you can use, some fancy materials called superconducting materials inside the motor. So for those type of materials, they're quite challenging because uh, normally superconductors work in a very low temperature, liquid nitrogen boiling temperature, about 77 Kelvin, something like that. And if you want to use superconductors inside the motor, you need to consider many different aspects, such as how electrically superconductors behave, but how you can keep them cool down at a very low temperature for a long time. And last but not least, how different parts of your motor behave in the low temperature. For example, if you cool down a metal or a plastic, both of them shrink, but the amount of the shrinks of the, let's say, metals is more than some sort of plastics, for instance. So if you put them together and then you cool them down all down to minus 200 degrees Celsius, then you need to consider how, because you have different shrinking ratio, how they can function properly in that low temperature. But the good point about the superconductors is that if you could keep the temperature low, you can magnetize them, and then they behave like a permanent magnet, which is very nice. So you can make a permanent magnet by using superconductors. The problem is that they can get demagnetized on certain conditions. So one of the tasks that we've had before, started when I was at Cambridge, was to try to understand how these superconductors behave and how we can try to avoid or reduce the amount of demagnetization. But if you could magnetize them and if you could avoid demagnetizations on superconductors, then you can use them inside the motor. And then you will end up with a highly efficient and very compact type of electric motors. Speaking of things being more compact, another aspect of Medi and his team's research is making things more compact. We are trying to develop more efficient and more compact units, uh, not only for the electric cars, but also for other type of electric vehicles, such as air taxis or electric ships, etc. What would be some of the benefits of making it more compact? It depends on, on the application. For example, if you want to use the electric propulsion unit in a ship, for instance, compactness is not your main criteria for the design. You would like to have, for a ship, for example, you would like to make something highly reliable. You don't want your system stops working in the middle of the ocean. But in some other applications, such as electric taxis, for instance, you have very limited space. And then most of the times you need to space is A, is limited, and B, if you have small systems, you have more space for batteries, so batteries are quite precious to have. The more, the better for the operation of your system. On that type of conditions, space becomes quite precious and valuable. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting that you said, like, having more space for battery, which makes sense because, yeah, you want that big battery so that you can go longer periods of time without charging up because my brain automatically went to more room for passengers, but I didn't think about that. That's so true. In an article by Thomas Morgan for the BBC titled, How Easy Is It to Drive Across Wales in an Electric Car?, Thomas found his drive across Wales extremely challenging. There was a lot of planning involved, and even with careful planning, he still nearly ran out of charge at one point. There was also hours spent looking for and charging his car when the place he stayed at did not have a charging point in town. Additionally, 
rapid chargers, chargers that can charge in under an hour, were even fewer and farther between. This makes that need for a powerful battery extremely important. In a further quest to have a longer charge, Medi's team is trying to solve the problem with an alternative power source. So we can have something which is called electric hybrid cars, which means that we can have different energy resources. So the main one is batteries, for instance. So we can have some energy inside the batteries. And then we have the fuel cells that works basically based on the hydrogen. And hydrogen, you can access quite cheaply and they are quite clean as well. When you put hydrogen in a car, can you put it in a car like you would like fueling gas into a car? Precisely, yes. So there are some sort of hydrogen stations that we can go and then fill up uh, your tank with hydrogen. And then some chemical reactions will happen inside your car. And the outcome would be some energy that you can use to run your motor and also some water. So comparing with the internal combustion engines that you get some CO2 or CH4 as the outcome, so you get some water, which is much safer energy resources comparing with fuels, gas, etc. So when is it when it's coming out, is it coming out as water and then it's using like hydrogen for certain parts of it and then the oxygen or, or whatever else for the other parts? Is that my understanding that correctly? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you have hydrogen and then you have oxygen, and then when you have these combinations as a chemical reactions, you get some energy out, and then you get you get water out. So, in summary, Medi's research team is looking into how to create magnetic energy to run electric motors without the use of hard to acquire magnets, to create smaller, more efficient batteries so you can fit more of them into vehicles, allowing them to go for longer periods of time without charging, and powering vehicles in a hybrid approach of electric charging and hydrogen fuel. All of this will help electric vehicles to be mass-produced, run efficiently, and, most importantly, lessen the environmental impact of driving. At this point, you may be asking yourself where the I am at UCL facility fits into all this. Well, Bonnie and her group did a fantastic job to build this car simulator. And uh, what they do is basically they try to understand the driver's behavior more or less in the virtual that is close to the real conditions. And so what we do here is try to understand how we can build, let's say, electric motors and power electronic systems that are highly efficient. And electric motors, for instance, they do not work in a one condition. For example, sometimes you are in highway, so you can go to 120 miles per hour or, or even more. Sometimes you are in the urban area that you can go with 40, 50 miles per hour. Sometimes you need to have sudden brake. Sometimes you need to accelerate your car very quickly based on your different modes or different environmental conditions. So we need to get some feedback from the real conditions. There are some patterns which is called drive cycles in which they come up with different scenarios that you may expect in the real life. But these are not 100% real life conditions. So there are some sort of modeled or simplified models basically. And what would be interesting to see is getting data from the car simulator based on the 
driver's behavior and get those data and then they, we feed them into our system to see how our system behaves in such conditions. So we, we get more insight on the characteristics of our system, for example, how our system will be efficient in such conditions, or we can also learn more deeply how we can design, uh, for example, our motors or our power conversion units. That's interesting. So you take that behavioral research and then apply it to see how the engine reacts? Like, how would you test that? We can save the commands of the driver. And those commands can be translated on what you want as a uh, real conditions. For example, if the driver decides that they want to accelerate and then they press a pedal for acceleration, then this data will be stored and then we can use this data as an input to our system. So what we want basically is a graph that on the x-axis you have time and on the y-axis is your speed. So if we could get this data from the car simulator, which we could, then we have enough information to run our system based on those such data. For example, when you are driving your car in a city, you go with 40 miles per hour for two minutes, and then there's a traffic light, you stop, and then traffic light gets green, and then you accelerate maybe rapidly. So this kind of data, which is basically speed versus time, we can learn about the acceleration. So we have a speed and time, a speed over time gives you acceleration. And then we know, for example, for how long you run your car on certain speed, etc. So in the real conditions, you will get many up and down because even in a normal road, you are not operating your car with exactly 40 miles per hour. You go 41, 40, 39, etc. And your car or your electric propulsion unit should adapt itself based on such small changes. Data collected on the driver simulator of IAM at UCL can be used to understand how drivers drive, which will help inform Medi's team of what kind of testing needs to be done in their research, making their units that much more applicable, efficient, and ready for use. Medi also has an idea of what can be done in the future to make IAM at UCL's driving simulator even better. I've seen the simulator. It is a very nice design and it is very easy to operate and well done to both Bonnie and Helge for doing it. And it's not challenging as such, but perhaps we could develop a bit more. For example, if in the future we could provide some sort of feedback from the road to the system, that would be nice, much nicer. For example, you need to put some sort of hydraulic systems, as FE motors that somehow simulate the real conditions, which would be quite nice to have. But apart from that, I like the system a lot. It is very versatile and very helpful. The future of electric vehicles is bright, thanks to the hard work of people like Mehdi and his research team, and access to valuable resources like I am at UCL's facility. Just think, in a few years' time, you could be in an electric vehicle that utilizes the technology created right here at UCL. With our next guest, we will be switching gears from open road to open water. My name is Dr. Yuan Chang Liu, and I'm from the mechanical engineering. I'm currently the lecturer within the department. 
with main research about robotics and autonomous systems. And we're specifically working on marine autonomy, including sensing perception, including planning and control. Yin Chang works on the autonomy of a variety of maritime vessels, ranging from small boats that are deployed for search and rescue in post-disaster scenarios, to large cargo ships that import and export goods. But regardless of the size of the vessel, there are certain standards that need to be met. For example, The boat needs to avoid other vessels which are moving to prevent any collisions and to ensure the safety. He also needs to ensure that a boat is able to approach a berth and stop within the berth within a certain range. And... If the boat is giving a serious waypoint, then the boat needs to track this waypoint as accurately as possible. Making sure that a vessel is able to autonomously avoid other vessels, pull up to a dock successfully, and accurately follow a designated path can be difficult. Especially when you consider the fact that environmental conditions can have a huge impact on how a vessel is able to maneuver around. Speaking of environmental conditions, there is a fourth standard that Yen Chang is always aiming for when creating his vessels. Environmentally friendly design. The shipping industry has a huge responsibility to address the climate issues. This is because a large proportion of CO2 emission is actually coming from the shipping industries. And to develop appropriate decarbonization technologies for ships is crucial. Creating an environmentally friendly maritime vessel that is able to navigate through waters accurately despite environmental conditions is a huge challenge, one that is made even more difficult by the logistical problems that come with testing an autonomous maritime vessel. You can't simply just build a boat and test it on the lake. To do the test, to think of what kind of research questions will be coming from the actual boat is quite challenging. So that led me to do a lot of uh, background researches. And also we have in collaboration with a lot of maritime industries to have in-depth conversations. As Yen Chang has pointed out here, when it comes to maritime robotics, you cannot research and test your vessel in a laboratory bubble. You need insight into how maritime industries operate and some of the challenges they face. You have to work in collaboration with maritime industries to gain understanding and be able to come up with research questions. Then, you need a method for testing your design, something that can be quite difficult when designing a ship. But having the right connections can help. For example, we had a very good relationship with the University of Plymouth. They had a boat. I think they had the UK's first educational autonomous vessels platform. So we collaborated with them and did some tests in oceans. And then during the tests, we find out some more challenges or interesting problems. And then we go back and do some research. So that's sort of like a loop. We had some knowledge, we test it, and we find new challenges, and we go back to further develop the technologies. 
Yeah, it must be a long process then if you're constantly going back and then having to reloop again and again just to see, because I'm sure there's always things that come up that you just haven't thought of, or I guess also testing in different weather climates, like during different seasons, it's probably going to be a little different too. Yeah. I, I still remember one of the experiments we've done with Plymouth, I think it's in Rofer Lake, close to Plymouth. If my memory serves me correctly, I think it was during February quite chilly and not mention the cold temperature on the lake so the weather was not very good but we were able to manage it and yeah it's, I think it's quite good memory for us anyway yeah were you out on the water for like a really long time outside uh our plan was about six hours but in the end we couldn't stand <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh and that wind's always a killer too <laughs> yeah and it, it was raining oh gosh yeah and a strong wind as well. But if we look at it from the other way, which is that the bad weather creates more challenges to our platforms that so we can sort of have bad understanding of the platforms. Although this type of testing in the water, especially under difficult weather conditions, is great for seeing how well a platform can perform, Having a way of testing in a laboratory beforehand could make it more likely that the tests in the water will be successful, thus reducing the amount of times needed to go back and forth to a body of water. This is where I am at UCL facility comes into play. One of the challenges for my research is that we couldn't have the access to the boat as much or as frequently as possible. So we need to build up a virtual environment by ourselves. And actually, I'm trying to work with Helga and Barney as well to sort of create a new maritime virtual environment. So then we can test our boat, test our algorithms in the virtual environment that essentially, first of all, reduce the costs. Yeah, because running the boat on a lake is costing much higher than driving a car on the road. And so if we can generate very good results from the virtual environment, then we can transfer the technology from the simulations onto the real platforms and further test it. Creating maritime simulations requires different considerations than when creating road driving simulations. We are in, in the sort of starting stage to develop this environment at the moment, because ultimately, although the technologies might be the same, but the environment is different. For the road environment, it includes more elements because, for example, within the urban environment, you have buildings, you have the pedestrians, you have the traffic lights, you have the roads, etc. But in maritime environments, the structure is much simpler. Basically, we have the sky, we have the water, we have the obstacles. That's it. However, the main difference is that on the road, although there are a lot of uncertainties, but the environment aspects is less, I would say, less significant if we compare it with the maritime because on the oceans you will be expecting varying currents winds rain different heavy rains for example and sunlight so all the different aspects of the environment will have huge impact on your vessels so to create a virtual environment for that ocean environment is quite challenging and we do need some help or support or conversation with the people from the IM group to understand it better. 
The prospect of having simulators for maritime research is an exciting one because it brings the maritime industry a step closer to achieving autonomy by making the research for it feasible and affordable. It's an aspect that has held the maritime industry back in the past. The autonomy level of ships, no matter what kind of ships, we have large cargo ships, for example, and we have small boats. They are relatively low compared with the self-driving cars or road vehicles. For example, if you drive a Tesla, it can almost achieve the autonomous driving for you and different environments or scenarios. But for the boats or for the vessels, we're still at the early stage. So currently, for the large cargo ships or large vessel or ships, we still rely on the human operators on board. Even that we want to achieve a certain level of automation, we still require the pilots on board to monitor the processes. And then the next step will be we slightly uh, remove the onboard pilots from the ships onto the land-based stations. So we sort of uh, achieve the remote control, but still we require the human operators to monitor the whole process, but not on the, but not on the ships, but, but from the base station. And then if we move on to the further step, that will be the autonomous ships, which means that there's no people either on ships or at base stations. So basically three stages, and we're still on the first stage. Yeah. And then I guess like someone brought up a point before about people have to learn how that technology works. So it takes a while for that. But I guess if you're talking about like a maritime thing, it's not as important because it's not like you had talked about before there's not as many elements it's mainly the environment and other things i mean you do run into other ships and stuff but not as much as you are when you're driving and people and everything else so i imagine that it could potentially happen faster than the automated industry i don't know i could be wrong it could be but as you mentioned maybe the traffic environment is sort of easier compared with the road vehicles but ships are very large to make it to make it autonomous or automated not only we need to achieve autonomous navigation but also it involves a propulsion systems involves the communication systems involves a lot more complicated systems from an engineering perspective the uh, ships are much more complex than a car But the complexity of a ship doesn't seem to be the biggest hurdle when it comes to making these vessels autonomous. My personal perspective would be that the biggest drive to achieve any new technology will be the government. Uh, Let's take the example of electrical cars. If we look back, for example, a decade ago, in around 2010, that's the emergence of the electrical cars. People were not ready for that, but we know, okay, there's a new type of car. It looks amazing. Its performance is much better than the petrol cars or diesel cars. And then there's huge drive from the government to tackle the climate change. So we need to sort of uh, use the electrical cars as much as possible. And then we see a burst of the use of electrical cars on the road. So that kind of significantly drive this new technology forward. I would say... If the regulator of the government will be more interested in the t- robotics or AI or self-driving cars or even autonomous ships, then I can see there'll be huge, huge, huge progress in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Because I guess you need that government support for it to be get more funding in order to 
get people uh, get make be able to figure out ways to make things more affordable i guess because people aren't going to do things if they can't afford to affordable yeah. <laughs> to, yeah 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 exactly exactly uh and then what difference do you think this research will make to the people that will ultimately be benefiting from it imagine the world that ships are are driving themselves autonomously then things just changed i mean first of all costs will be reduced safety will be improved efficiency will be improved and we're going to have a better world that's the huge huge impact and i would like to say that another important thing is how we can ensure the decarbonization as I mentioned before of ships shipping industries contribute a large amount of CO2 emissions so we need to ensure that we decarbonize them as much as possible to tackle the climate change it's one of the biggest issues yes yes that's the ideal world right ships cargo ships that are able to go on their own and <laughs> and be able to do it without creating much of an environmental impact and then and that way maybe because they're not as much of an environmental impact and you're not having to have someone constantly being there you can do more passing back and forth as well <laughs> yes exactly yeah Although it may seem like this ideal world of autonomous ship driving with reduced carbon impact, increased safety, and increased international trade is something that will be achieved in the distant future, it might actually happen sooner than you think, especially with the strides in technology made by researchers like Yen Cheng. This is our last episode of I Am at UCL, the podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure to meet the I Am research team and put this series together. I have tremendous respect and admiration for Bonnie and Helga for creating this one-of-a-kind facility. It is clear that it is making such a positive impact on the way academics are able to carry out their research, not only for those in autonomous automotive engineering, but a variety of other disciplines, such as lighting design, human-computer interaction, and the maritime industry. It's truly incredible. Thank you for listening to I Am at UCL, the podcast. If you would like to learn more about the research at I Am at UCL, you can check out their website at www ucl-intelligent-mobility.com and or subscribe wherever you are listening to this podcast so you can be notified when new episodes come out. This episode was produced and hosted by myself, Casty Martin, with music from Blue Dot Sessions. It was brought to you by I Am at UCL, which is part of UCL Pearl and Dagenham, and supported by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insight, and expertise through events, digital content, and activities that are open to everyone. A special thank you to Mehdi and Yencheng this month for sharing their time, knowledge, and insight. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast and feel like you learned something new, like I have with everyone I've interviewed in this series. Take care, and I'll see you around. Cheers.